Again, grateful uh, that you're here. Um, I realize that on, on any given Sunday, it's uh, not an insignificant thing uh, to be able to, um, you know, get out of your house. Um, for some of us, corral the kids, right? Get everybody together. Somehow make it through um, whatever distance that you're traveling, whether it be near or far, and, and to get here. So I, um, I recognize that. So I'm grateful uh, that you're here. And as we always say, um, that we should never take for the granted the fact that you're here, right? The fact that you're here is not in unintentional. It's not haphazard. It's not just by chance um, that God would ordain that you would be here on this day. Uh, that we would hear God's word together. So uh, grateful that you're here. We're continuing on in this sermon series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 13. And as, as we mentioned, we're in a series within the series in uh, the parables. We're going to call it just parables. In Matthew 13, Jesus goes through a series of uh, these parables. Uh, we started last week with the first one in Matthew chapter 13, which is the parable of the sower. Uh, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to hop on uh, the podcast and just give that a listen if you haven't uh, heard it. Um, it'll help to give uh, great context for as we're going through uh, these parables together. Um, so we come now to the parable of the weeds, as Amelia was kind enough to read for us uh, this morning. Uh, if you've noticed, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of a theme in these first two parables, the parable of the sower parable of the weeds. Uh, we're talking about farming. We're talking about planting. We're talking about growing things. Um, I feel somewhat ill-equipped uh, to be able to handle these parables in the sense that I don't know the first thing about any of that, right? I think my mom might be able to do a better job um, explaining these probably because I had a cactus once in sixth grade. Um, I think my mom took it over and it and it lived for a little while, but that's the extent of my experience with, uh, with farming, right? So, uh, but the reason why is because that culture that Jesus was talking to is an agrarian society, right? So these <clears throat> sort of principles of, uh, were, would connect with them, right? They would be able to understand and see the pictures. And as we have been learning about parables and how to understand them, we understand that one of the important things about, about learning them and learning about them is to hear from the original hearer's perspective, right? So we want to try to continue to do that as we, as we go through. So if you were paying attention and you were listening to the parable as Amelia read it, or if you were familiar with it just in general, this parable of the weeds, uh, you'll know that it, it culminates in this sort of conclusion um, and the explanation of it, which has to do with judgment, with judgment. Now, that's not something that I think we spent a lot of time thinking about, if I'm being honest, right? I don't know that we wake up in the morning and think about judgment, God's judgment, the judgment of God, right? I don't think that's something that we necessarily do all the time. Um, now, when I think about Scripture and I think about some things in Scripture where maybe we don't understand everything about it or where there's mystery and there's other things that we understand and, and it's very clear to us, something helpful for me as I navigate through things like this where there's, you know, when you think about um, Christ and his coming, um, there's lots that could be said about it, and there's a lot we could understand about it, and there's certain things that are unknown about it. Then there are other things in Scripture 
that we know, that we handle, right? And how do we balance this? Well, something for me that has been helpful is that um, I'm not so much concerned about in the Bible about what I don't understand. What scares me more really is about the things that I do understand. And I say that to mean, right, I'm not so, so much concerned about when it comes to uh, judgment and, and hell, right, as Jesus is going to talk about here. I'm not so much concerned about my understanding of those things being watertight as the fact that I'm concerned that I live like that there is an actual judgment that is going to happen. That's been helpful for me. What concerns me about the Bible is not what I don't understand, but what I do understand about those red-letter verses that we see, Jesus' own words. What? That Jesus calls us to what? Take up a cross and follow. We know that. That's clear. Calls us to die to ourselves. Calls me to be a living sacrifice, to be thankful in all circumstances, to do justice and love mercy. You know, that's kind of what we can kind of key into. So when you, when you talk about judgment, which is kind of where this parable sort of heads, um, there's so much you could say about it because there is a lot in Scripture that talks about it. And you know who one of the main culprits is when it comes to the judgment of God and talking about the judgment of God? Jesus. Jesus. He talks about it a lot. Now, don't, don't you find it strange, you may or may not, that one of Jesus' most frequent things that he talks about is judgment, and yet I feel we rarely talk about it. Why is that? Right? Why might that be? Well, I think maybe it could be a little bit of an overcorrection to um, some gospel preaching and teaching that has been focused on fear, right? So when that happens, maybe there's a kind of an overcorrection to say, hey, let's kind of just de-emphasize this judgment business. Or maybe it's because we don't realize that judgment is part of the gospel. That judgment is actually good news. And at first, I think maybe that doesn't quite settle in in our hearts and minds very well. But I think as we walk through the parable, we'll be able to see that more clearly. So, um, so we're going to jump into the parable of the weeds, but I think it's important to think about where we're coming from. We came from the parable of the sower, which was right before. And last week we talked about that. And we said that in that parable, Jesus describes how different people receive the message of the kingdom. So there's a sower who's sowing good seed, and sometimes the seed hits what? Good soil and a good, uh, good soil of a heart and, and grows. Right? But very often what happens? It doesn't. Why? Because the human heart is hard 
and distracted and deceived. So in that parable of the sower, Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom is reaching out to all kinds of hearts. But only some kind of hearts receive it. And we, we should probably expect that because there's lots that gets in the way. So he goes from that parable of the sower now to the parable of the weeds. And there's some similarities here. There's a sower again. And there's seed again. And there's wheat again. And then there's a harvest again. And the parable seems to say that even when there is what looks like healthy wheat, meaning people of the kingdom that is growing, that all may not actually look as though uh, how it seems. That a lot of the elements of the parable of the sower are present in the parable of the weeds, but the focus is something different. There's a different focus. Jesus is trying to tell us something different using a similar context. And another thing that's similar between the parable of weeds and the parable of the sower is that just like the parable of the sower where Jesus explains it, guess what Jesus does with the parable of the weeds? He explains that also. He explains it also to just his disciples. So we see that in Matthew chapter 13 starting in verse 36. So what I want to do is, kind of like last week, we read, we read Jesus' explanation to sort of help us understand. So if you'd look with me in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 36, here's what Jesus says. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, if you weren't awake already this morning, I hope that Woke you up, right? Uh, it woke me up just a little bit, just even reading it. And here's the thing. When we come, and as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been acknowledging Jesus as king, here's an important thing, right? Because we can easily go through Scripture and cherry pick, right? And go and take, take the verses out that we like, and the verses that we don't like, we can kind of leave them alone. We could do that, right? But if Jesus is king, if Jesus is king, then all of his words matter. If he's not king, then none of it matters. Don't worry about it. Leave it all behind. If he's king, then every last word matters. 
all of it. If we come to God's word and we try to, you know, fashion, try to take the parts out that we like and leave the parts that we don't like there, what we're really doing is sort of a modern day version of idol forming, right? You think of idol worship and you think about something ancient, about folks taking wood and stone and, and carving it and shaping it into a shape and a figure that is to their liking. Well, when we do that with God's word and what Jesus has said, that's just what we're doing. We're carving and shaping an image that's palatable to us, that, but that may look nothing like the actual God of the universe. So it's a caution for us as we come to God's word. If he's king, all of it matters. If he's not king, don't worry about any of it. Right? So G- Jesus, again, he explains it, right? So just like last week, I said, all right, let's go home. Right? He did it. Just, yeah, let's, we're done. I'm done here, right? So what do we have here? Let's look at the parable. Again, right? This is a real-life illustration that those people, when they're hearing it, they are connecting with this because this is their day-to-day. This is their world. You talk about the growing cycle of wheat. Maybe to us, we go, what is that? To them, they're like, yeah, planting, growing, harvesting. This makes sense. So what happens in the story? The wheat grows. The servants go out, and what do they find out? Oh, a great mystery. What happens? There's another plant growing in there. Why? While the servants were asleep, an enemy walked through the field and sowed another weed. Now, most likely, the thinking here is that this was a particular type of weed, a poisonous weed, a weed that had a name called Darnell. The thing about this particular type of weed is that it looks exactly like the wheat until the heads form. And we actually know a little bit about this particular weed because there's actually a a fair amount about it in the ancient literature. Because this is something that, that people would do. Competitive farmers would do. To me, they sound just like petty farmers, right? But like, they would come and they'd sneak in. And they're like, oh, I'm going to get this guy. And they'd sow this, this seed in there. So much so in the ancient literature, you can see that it was considered an act of economic sabotage under Roman law and carried a severe punishment if a person was found to have contaminated someone else's crop. Yeah, people were, were petty back then too, right? That, that hasn't changed about human beings. So if you look from verse 36, Jesus explains some things, right? What? He is the sower. He's the good farmer. And he's sowing what? Seed. Good seed. And where is he sowing it? He's sowing it in this field, which is the world over over time. And the wheat are the people whose lives are of the kingdom. And the weeds are the people whose lives, what, reject the kingdom. But remember, what does the farmer sow? He only sows what? Good seed. So the servants ask this question, hey, where do these weeds come from? 
where did the weeds come from? And this question for us kind of works on a few different levels, right? You think about the world, you think about the church at large, you even think about our lives, which kind of spread out and are interconnected, right? Think about those things. Some of it, the world, the church at large, your lives that spread out and are interconnected, some of it looks nothing like the kingdom. Some of it looks absolutely nothing like the kingdom of God. Some of it looks like the kingdom of God. You know why? Because it is. Some of it looks like the kingdom of God because it is the kingdom of God. And then some of it looks like the kingdom of God but is just a good counterfeit. It's kind of a, a good fake, a deep fake, if you will, to use a modern thinking, right? Where did all these weeds come from? How did this happen? Jesus says that an enemy, the devil, has done this. Now, I think it's important to think about this in the context of the entire narrative of the Bible. It's a critical plot line, right? Go back to the, the first verse of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. God created heaven and earth. He is the author, and yet he is not the author of evil. And I think this is an important detail for folks that maybe in their mind have this image that God you know, constructed hell because he's somehow enthusiastic about people going there to be eternally separated. But really, if you go back, and you go back into Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is saying, what he's saying about this narrative, right, the overarching story is that there is something else growing that is really a poisonous counterfeit. The work of the enemy planting these poisonous seeds to sabotage the work of God. That there's this corrupting impulse that is against God. Think back to the parable of the sower, right? And those four soils or those four surfaces as we, as we talked about them, right? Some hearts are what? Hard, like that concrete path. Some hearts are overcome by this self-preservation amid just the troubles and the, and the trials and the persecutions of life. Some hearts are self-absorbed because of all the cares of this world and the temptations of wealth. So what happens? As a result, what do we do? We, we want to run the show ourselves. We want to define good and evil ourselves, and we build a counterfeit kingdom that looks like God's kingdom but doesn't bear fruit like God's kingdom. And Jesus says that there is an, an enemy at work that does this. C.S. Lewis, the great author, put it, put it this way. 
right? He says, something has been going in all of us from the beginning that if not nipped in the bud, will be like hell for us if we let it. And when we, when we think about hell conceptually, right, there's a way to think about it that it's a freely chosen course of self-absorption, of self-preservation. Think of it as a hardness of heart that extends where? Forever. And when you think about that, right, I, there's, there's a sense in which we don't even have to wait because even inside God's creation now, think about the, the hellscapes that we, that we witness. Addictions, injustice, exploitation, war zones, neighborhoods, crumbling, broken, homes, this is all the weeds of a counterfeit crop that God doesn't make and God wants to remove. And the servants ask a question. What do they say? Do you want us to go pull up the weeds? Now, if I was the farm, I'd be like, yeah, hop to it. Jesus says what? No. Jesus says no. Don't do that. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them, with them. So the servants, you can look at as us, right? Saying what? Hey, let us handle this. Hey, can we start the judgment? And the master says, wait. Be patient. It's not the right time. Why? Because he says, because you will end up doing more damage than good. That's fascinating. The servants can't judge what is wheat and what is weed quite yet. I think at times... We struggle with getting up and sitting on that judgment throne ourselves. We think we know who is what, who is in, who is out, who is righteous, who is not, who's a good Christian, who's a sinner. And Jesus is saying, I don't trust you to be the judge if someone is yet to be a wheat or a weed. And I don't want you to treat wheat like what? Like it's a weed. And I don't want you to treat weed like it's what? Like it's wheat. That time will bear this out. And if you engage in the task of being the judge, the ultimate judge, you not only will do unnecessary damage to people, but you will do what you are not qualified to do, which is be the judge. Now, if you go back in the Gospel of Matthew, we spent a good amount of time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about judging. And what this does not mean is that 
this doesn't mean that we cannot challenge or critique what we see around us. That's, that's, not, that's not right. We know that's not right. Especially to challenge and critique people who might claim to have a righteousness, claim to be religious. How do we know that? Jesus is constantly speaking out about attitudes and actions by religious people that are corruptions of God's will and way. We know that. We've seen that. Paul does this in his letters to the, to the churches all the time. Right? So that's not what we're talking about. But we, what we are saying is this should really give us pause to realize that we should be cautious. There should be a hesitance to judge a person's final status in the kingdom. See, maybe you can't see the wheat at the moment, but be careful what you declare over someone. I think about the thief on the cross. My mind is drawn there. Did the thief on the cross look like a weed or a wheat a few hours before his death? So Jesus says what? Let both, let both grow together until when? The harvest. There's a time coming when what's of the kingdom will be revealed. And this is that harvest time. So at the harvest, who is the judge? Not you. Not me. But the king. Jesus. The Nicene Creed puts it this way. Jesus will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. It's clear, again, Jesus talks about it. It's clear from Jesus and it's clear from what his apostles have written that Jesus will return to judge all people. And, and again, I say it's, it's, we can cherry pick, right? We can go through God's word and say, I would get to a spot and say, all right, well, let's just go around this one, right? There are even, if you look in popular Christianity throughout just recent years, there are those who ha- would take the doctrine of judgment and hell and, and say, yeah, well, these just, just metaphors, just metaphors, figurative. Meaning that it's not pointing to something that's, that's real in any sort of sense. And I think that's happening because people are trying to m- make, make these doctrines more acceptable to a world that cannot accept what the Bible says about, about it. And I think that's a mistake. Again, if he's king, then all of, it, all of what he says matters. If he's not, forget it. See, our passage today, it's a parable, right? It's a metaphor, but it's nonetheless describing something that is real, that is happening, that will happen in the arc of eternity. So there are some questions. Again, we talked in the beginning about things that we know and things that we don't know, right? Um, When is the harvest? I don't know. 
Go read Matthew chapter 24 for yourself. Jesus says there will be lots of signs, but no one knows the day or hour. Now, I have no idea if it's in my lifetime or a thousand years from now. But, but again, come back to what you know. We're supposed to live like it could be any day. Do we live that way? Do we think that way? Do we talk that way? Some more questions. Who's going to be judged? Who gets judged? If you look at the parable, and if you look at Scripture, all are judged at the harvest. The wheat and the weeds are judged. We will all stand before the judge one day. And again, do we think about that much? I don't know. One day you will be accountable for your life. Yes, if you prayed a prayer some decades ago, or whether you attended church every day, or whether your father was a, a pastor, or your father was a minister, or not, whatever, one day. I think about growing up, and as I grew up, and, you know, learning about Christianity, and learning about the faith, and, and strangely, somewhere along the way, when I was young, and I was thinking about judgment, um, I, I just got this impression that there was some kind of express line. I don't know if you've ever been to like Disney or one of these theme parks and you get that, get one of those bracelets, fast pass, and you kind of go, and all these losers standing in the, this really long line, you're like, see ya, <laughs> right, and you just go right in, right, so I think back into Christianity, and I think about, when I thought about judgment, and when I was young, and I was growing up, I had this idea that there's, there's this sort of, you know, special people can like kind of skip the queue, that as a Christian, there was some secret passcode and all access areas to pass, that would cause me to pass and avoid judgment. It's not true. If you go back to chapter 12, Jesus says to the religious people, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. I'm going to be there for a minute for that one. And if you go forward in Matthew, and you go forward to Matthew chapter 25, there's another series of parables there that we're going to get to eventually. And those parables in Matthew chapter 25 are like um, smelling salts for the soul. I don't know if you've ever seen like a football player or a boxer. Um, when they're a little dazed or a little confused, they'll break some of these smelling salts, and, and it, whew, Right? Matthew 25, the parables in there are like smelling salts for the soul. They wake us up to the reality of judgment, right? The parables that are there, it's the parable of the ten young virgins. That's a parable about being ready, being ready for the return of Christ. The parable of the talents, 
which is about knowing the heart of God so that you steward uh, whatever resources God has given you now in light of eternity. There's also the parable of the sheep and the goats, which remind us that many people who think they are sheep or wheat in our parable, who think they are good with God, may get a nasty shock when Jesus reveals how all the religious activity didn't count for anything because it never translated into the most basic expressions of love for others in need. That's it. This is all intense, right? I grant you. It is. It's supposed to be. And then to top it all off, as someone who's a, a pastor, as someone who endeavors to lead and shepherd people, I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13 to 15. And primarily, I think he's speaking about leaders, but I think it can apply to all of us in a certain way. Here's, here's what Paul says. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. What an image. Our lives and our work will be shown for what it is. It will all be tested. And for some leaders who endeavor to lead, all we'll have at the end is the mercy of God. But there'll be little to show for the life that we were given to use for his glory. I mean, think about that. Now, I grant you, all of this is heavy. It is, right? It is. But if you think about judgment, and let's, let's, let's think about it for a second, I think you actually want this. Why? Because a world without a God who judges is a world without ultimate justice. A world where nothing really matters in the end. Everything goes unaccounted for. The good and the evil. Not only that, and that not only means that the way you live your life doesn't ultimately matter. But when someone else does a grave injustice against you, well, ultimately, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter either. Do you want that world where right and wrong is only a matter of each individual person's opinion and no one's going to be finally accountable in the end? Do you want that world? Now, some might say God is a God of love. How could he judge in this way? Now, yes, God is the God of love, but that means, hear me this morning, that means that he's equally committed to justice as an expression. 
expression of that love. If God were not angry at injustice, if God were not concerned with holding people to account for their sin and corruption, he would not be truly loving or worthy of any worship at all. And also, you want a God who judges because without it, our world is thrown deeper and deeper into an endless cycle of retaliation and revenge and ever-increasing violence. If there's no final justice, you have to always take your pain into your own hands. And this seems backward. This seems paradoxical, right? This seems upside down. This seems inside out. But again, God's kingdom is that way. But God's judgment is perhaps the only way people can break free from the cycle of violence and revenge and truly find peace because the answer to shall we deal with the, the weeds, right? Shall I take vengeance? What's the answer? No. In the end, God will. And with that burden of getting back or getting even lifted off our shoulders, God's justice unlocks us from the prison of our resentment and the bitterness and enables us to walk free into grace, into forgiveness, and into a new life. You see, judgment is actually good news. Judgment is actually part of the gospel. And I know that's not necessarily what we think. That's because judgment has been used to scare people into Jesus. But, here, but here's the problem with fear. The fear never transforms the heart. Fear never transforms the heart. You know what fear does? It just makes us comply. And the motivation for that is the same self-preserving, self-seeking reasons as before. You're still in fear. You're still thinking what? What's in it for me? You could say fear fertilizes the weeds that the enemy has planted. And the enemies would be super happy with that. But as, we, as we come to close this morning, what truly changes the heart is not fear of judgment, but a love that is so costly, so costly that it melts your heart, that it drowns the fear, makes you want to run toward that love's source no matter the cost. See, I think we can gloss over an important point in the parable because in our human understanding, our eyes and ears get attracted to the talk of judgment. And the judgment is at the end of the story. And like I said, the judgment is real and it's part of the gospel. But our human understanding wants to zero in on that and and pick that apart and 
poke holes in it out of our own self-centeredness, and then we miss something right in the middle of the story. What is that? That God allows the wheat and weeds to grow together until the end. What happens when the workers come and say, hey, should we start ripping? Should we start ripping the weeds out? Should we start doing that? Jesus says there is a judgment, and it's coming at the appointed time, but that time is not now. Don't do it. And in that moment, what I want you to see is the merciful patience of God. And we'll miss that if we come to God's word with blinders on and we come without humility. You will miss the patience of God. And as I think about the patience of God, I think about the patience of God towards me. If you're here this morning and you feel far from God, the fact that you're even here this morning, the fact that judgment is not appointed right now, that you have the time is the patience of God towards you. And you can run towards the greatest source of love that there is, no matter the cost. If you look forward in the next parables that are coming, there's a treasure that's in a field that you discover and makes you sell everything to buy the whole field. Or the finest pearl you must have such that you sell everything to have it. Where do you find this kind of love? A treasure that's worth everything. Where do you find that treasure? Where do you find that pearl? In the judge himself. See, if you flip it around from God's perspective, he infuses us with a worth that it is worth him giving everything for you. That's what Jesus, that's what God did in Jesus, the judge. Loving you cost more than you could imagine. We'll all be in the courtroom one day, on that day, the judgment handed down, and the verdict should be guilty, no matter how good you think you are. But then the judge comes down and says, hey, I know you, son, daughter, pays your debt. You are free. How? Because Jesus lived the life you could not live and died the death you should have died upon the cross. The judgment came down on him. The judge sacrificing himself for our guilt and our shame, loving you completely. You are worth selling everything to have. Why? So that you can discover him to be your treasure to 
today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. The judgment is appointed for another time. The patience of God is directed towards you so you could find him as your treasure today. So put your trust in Jesus. And if you will, then live tomorrow like everything matters. If he's the king, then all of what he says matters. And then if you put your trust in him, then you can live tomorrow like everything matters. We thank God. Let's look to the Lord and respond to him in worship this morning.